This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. All right, we'll regather. All right, so let me look on your handouts here. So we are picking up on page three. Right, page three. Right. So we've tried to uh, lay out. Uh, so we're talking about attributes, right, of Scripture, Scripture's necessity. That's really just, in discussions of the doctrine of Scripture, that's just where you begin, right, because you've got to lay that down before you even talk about, um, you know, its authority and inerrancy and all these very, very important areas, right? So with the fact um, in place, right, um, Scripture's necessary, right, so... Ultimately, the revelation of God, right, is is necessary both in creation, but also uniquely this word revelation that we're tying to Scripture. Um, what do we then? Right, God must speak to us, but what kind of authority does it have, right? Um, what do we mean by uh, biblical authority, right? Well, you don't have to go far, uh, even within churches, and then especially outside. So the evangelical orb to sort of mainline churches, right? Uh, so you can think of different denominations. So we've got our evangelical setting, and then you have, say, the Presbyterian Church of America or the United Methodist Church. I mean, those are your mainline kind of churches, right? Well, people have quite diverse views of Scripture, right? So we have to become very, very clear as to what we mean by biblical authority, right? So... Even people will say, and even even those who um, don't have a very high view of Scripture, <laughs> uh, if they are even tied to Christianity, they still all say they believe in the Bible. <laughs> uh, but what belief do they have, right? So I give you just a couple of points on the introductory comments there of people mean different things by biblical authority and the orthodox view orthodox simply means right the historic christian view throughout the ages that uh, i also think scripture itself teaches that's what we'll unpack just in a moment here but ultimately if we were to say what 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 is scripture right uh, we would say scripture is and i italicized is right scripture is god's authoritative word written by human authors and there's a shorthand that we can say what Scripture is. What Scripture says, God says. Or what the Bible says, God says. What God says, the Bible says. There's the, what we could say, an, an identity relationship. By identity relationship is picking up this notion of is. Right? The Bible, which can refer to human books. Right? In our Bibles, we have 66 books. Right? Uh, those human documents, and they are human documents. Right? Those human documents are God's word. Right? And of course, even to say that is where many people stumble. Right? Well, if they're human, how could they be God's word? How could something human be God's speech? Or certainly, if they're human, they must make mistakes. Right? I mean, they must have errors in them, right? If they're, I mean, we're finite, uh, we're sinful, we. Got all, and they're written over all these periods of time. I mean, they're ancient, and you know they were part of cultures that didn't understand things as we do in our sophisticated age. And you know, you hear all these kind of 
of points. And uh, so how could that Bible, what these human documents are, the Bible, be God's word? Scripture is God's word written through human authors. Well, we'll come back and lay the groundwork to that uh, just in a moment. But a very, very popular view, a sort of a middle view. So if you look at uh, number three, postmodern religious, I mean, there's many, many people that just view scripture as a kind of religious classic, right? Uh, you, know, you can study it in universities. Like, it's like the Quran. It's like another religious book, right? All religions, we're told, have, you know, their religious books. And the Bible is just one of those. It's, it's the Bible, the Old Testament, and usually you don't call it Old Testament in that kind of setting. You call it the Hebrew Bible or something like that, uh, the Jewish Bible. And then you have the Christian Bible, which includes the whole Old Testament, New Testament, so on, right? Just a religious classic, right? And if there's anything true about the Bible, it's because it agrees with us. Right? Actually, that's what I mean by functionally true, right? So, oh, I really like uh, the Good Samaritan ethic, uh, but, you know, all that stuff on heaven and hell, I don't like that. Right? So it's authoritative through the grid of us, right? And so we really become the authoritative arbiters, <laughs> of what we will believe from the Bible. I like certain parts of the Bible and other things I just reject. Other things I receive as true and other things as false, right? Well, there's a middle position and we can call it a number of things. It's historically has come down to us as a new kind of orthodoxy, a new orthodox. And this is where, unfortunately, uh, this is growing in leaps and bounds in evangelical circles, <laughs> uh, especially in the academy, right? You have to read these books and so on. So this is a kind of halfway house. Is that scripture isn't just isn't just a religious classic. I mean, it's 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 related to God, right? God has given us His Word, but Scripture is only a witness to God's Word. And and in this view here, Jesus really is the Word. Right? Jesus is the true Word of God, and the Scripture is a kind of witness to Him. You have this kind of view a little bit with um, Andy Stanley running around. Right? You hear Andy Stanley he makes. Uh, very provocative statements and so on and he'll say well you know we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament for the most part he'll say I believe the Old Testament but it's too much of a stumbling block to talk to contemporary people right and then he'll say well you know we didn't even have the New Testament until years later after Jesus what we have is the resurrection we have Jesus right and there's many many people will say well Jesus is really God's Word and he's the revelation so the Bible's only a witness to him but, you know, God may take these fallible writings and they are treated as fallible, right? They make mistakes, they make errors, but God can sort of speak through the air. So there's, he's not much of an evangelical, but he identifies the evangelical, Greg Boyd. Greg Boyd, he's a megachurch pastor in, uh, in the Minneapolis, St. Paul area. He's known for some aberrant theology, but he identified with evangelicalism. He wrote, he has a book called Inspired Imperfection, right? So the Bible is inspired imperfection, right? And there's a number of people who are doing this. Well, you have to ask people, what do you believe <laughs> when you say, I believe in the Bible's authority, or I believe the Bible is divine revelation, or I believe the Bible uh, is uh, God's word to us. What do we mean by that? Well, we're going to unpack here uh, the statement that Scripture is God's authoritative word, written. Right? Uh, it's not just a spoken word, it's a written document through human authors, right? That is getting at, and of course, if it's God's word written, 
through human authors, it bears his authority. So that's where we're going to now pick up in terms of the authority of Scripture and tie it to the doctrine of inspiration. So part of our whole doctrinal heritage is to affirm the inspiration of the Bible. What does this mean? Now, when we use the term inspiration, right, this is where we get ourselves into problems. Right? If you look up the term inspiration simply by Webster's Dictionary or Oxford Dictionary, whatever the dictionaries you want to look to, it's not a good thing to do is to go to English dictionaries and define theological terms. Right? That's a major mistake. Right? People uh, define terms differently. Right? So inspiration in a popular common sense really means right something almost subjective right so if you go to a play or you see a hear a wonderful piece of music and you say oh that was so inspiring right that was so and of course what we mean by that it was it moved me it moved my emotions it, 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 it was a delight to hear it fired my imagination I mean number of these things right uh, inspiration often is, in our popular sense, what something does to us. Right? In that sense, it is a subjective. But when we talk about the inspiration of the Bible, it should move us. <laughs> it should have a subjective effect on us, no doubt. But that has nothing to do with what we mean by God inspiring his word. The notion of inspiration I have, we'll see this in 2 Timothy, comes from certain Greek words, theopneustos, right? So theo, God breathed, right? So most of our English translations now actually translate this word properly, right? The old King James, I'm not knocking the King James, who's the best English at its day, uh, but it, 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 spoke about, it used the word inspiration. But of course, English at that time carried a different sense to it. <laughs> than it does today. So most of the translations today in 2 Timothy 3 will say all scripture is God breathed. And that is correct. That's, that's really what is meant by inspiration. So that's why I have on your handout here, inspiration uh, is not used the way when we speak about the inspiration of scripture, used as it's used in the popular sense, something inspiring. It's not even sort of God just breathing into the authors. Instead, the focus of inspiration is on God's supernatural work in and through authors that what is produced is a text, right? is a written document and documents and ultimately a written canon of scripture so that what we attribute to scripture, this is what notion of an attribute, what is scripture? Scripture is. At any time you have something after is, you're attributing to the subject. Scripture is God's breathed out word, right? So inspiration deals with the action of God to produce an authoritative text, right? Now, should that move us? Yes, but that's not what inspiration is, right? Inspiration, in this sense, is objective. It's the objective, supernatural work of God in and upon authors. So that's why I give you a definition of it. And I'm trying to emphasize this, and we'll turn to then two passages which give us this. Right? 
So what we mean by inspiration? Inspiration is the extraordinary work of God. Now, extraordinary, I have slash supernatural. That's another way of saying supernatural. Right? Often in our discussion of God's work in the world, right? God creates a world, and he also sustains the world. We speak of creation and providence. Much of God's sustaining of the world, right? even we're going to say it's ordinary, but even then, I mean, to sustain the universe is pretty powerful, right? But it's an ordinary in the sense that it's regular, right? So God sustains the world, right? So think of his ordering. Think of the Noahic promise, right? Seed time and harvest, summer and winter will never cease. Well, we have, we've gone from winter to spring, right? How is that? Well, there's, there's ways that the earth in terms of its physical laws and, and, and so on is sustained. Well, God sustains all of that, but he doesn't do it supernaturally in the sense of it's something extraordinary. It's very ordinary. Now, obviously it's divine power that does it. So I know uh, one theologian says everything's supernatural, but if you make everything supernatural, then there's nothing unique, right? So if you make your, you know, if you're a, if you had a baby, uh, here and you say my baby's birth is supernatural then what do you do with the virgin conception then <laughs> well uh, you have to have a separate category for that don't you because that's not the same as yours right your conception right uh, type of thing right so you have to say and often we do in providence right God ordinarily works now he's still sovereign <laughs> still doing power and so on but it's regular it's ordinary much of God's sustaining of things is in a very ordinary fashion, right? Uh, when you get up in the morning, you have to make yourself breakfast. God doesn't make it for you, right? Uh, he's not doing miracles, right? He doesn't give you manna from heaven, right? He gave the nation of Israel manna from heaven. That's extraordinary, right? So inspiration does not fit into the category of just simply sustaining authors or just sort of guiding them in that sense. It's more than that. It's something supernatural. Right? That's why the Bible is not just like any other book. Right? Now, it's going to be human, <laughs> yet it's God's word. Right? So inspiration is extraordinary, supernatural work of the triune God in and through the Holy Spirit. Now, what I'm doing there is all of God's work is triune, right? Father through Son by Spirit. But there's the unique action of the Spirit of God, right? Think of the incarnation, right? The incarnation comes about by the Father sending the Son, the Son taking to himself our human nature by the agency of the Spirit, the virgin conception, right? Yet it's only the Son who takes a humanity to himself, right? Not the Father or the Spirit. Well, something similar is going on here, right? God is at work in giving us Scripture. The Father speaks through the Son by the Spirit, but there's the unique work of the Spirit of God, the third person of the Godhead, that works on those human authors, carries those human authors along so that the human authors of Scripture, you know, Isaiah and Moses and James and Paul and the author of Hebrews, right? They freely compose their writings. And that freely is important. We only have a couple of places in the Bible where there's dictation. Most of it is just simply free writing. Paul writes on his own abilities and, and uh, Peter writes on his own abilities. And Isaiah, you can compare the different authors. They write differently, right? Uh, even there, you study Greek and Hebrew, and even the Greek of Hebrews is not the same as the Greek of John, and so on, 
right? They're different styles. Right? So they freely write, yet what they write freely right, is God intended. It's exactly what God intended for them to write in order to communicate, to reveal his truth to us. And thus it is, and for that very reason, it's authoritative. Right? If it was just merely Paul's thoughts, and it's not under the inspiration of the Spirit, you wouldn't have authority. It's because Paul's an apostle and speaks by the Spirit of God that what he freely writes is authoritative and true. Right? So inspiration is nothing ordinary. It's thoroughly extraordinary uh, through these human authors. Those or authors may orate in seemingly ordinary way, but the Spirit of God is working in and through them to give us that which is true and reliable, right? Now, let's think of this and expound this, and I've got here four points, but uh, the first point is, is what we're going to spend most of the time on is this emphasis picking up from the definition. You can turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter 1, and then we'll turn to 2 Timothy 3, right? Where does this understanding of inspiration come from uh, in Scripture? We said the doctrine of inspiration is the emphasis is on God's supernatural work in and through authors. Right? Uh, there's a kind of double emphasis, right? God is at work through the writings of authors. Right? So authors write, yet God supernaturally oversees what they're writing, um, superintends what they're writing, so what they write is his word written. Right? Well, there's two texts that really give us this doctrine of inspiration. I mean, we could do many more texts, but these are the sort of two classic passages, and both of these go together. You can't have one without the other, right? So often that's the case, right? One text by itself would only give you half the emphasis. Uh, you need both texts to give you your full view of biblical authority and full view of what the inspiration of Scripture is. So the first text, we can begin either with either one. We'll begin with 2 Peter 1, and particularly it's focused in verse 20 and 21. But this whole section, right? So as you look at any portion of Scripture, right, there's always a context to it. And this is a glorious context as the Apostle Peter is laying out to these Christians in the first century the sureties of the gospel and, and so on. So it really begins in verse 12 of 2 Peter 1. He's wanting to remind of the church of these things, of, of the truth of the gospel, right? Uh, even though you know them are firmly established in the truth you, you now have, I want to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. So as long as I exist, right? Peter will die probably around 64 AD. So this is prior to that. But as long as I'm here, I want to remind you of these things because I know that I soon will be put aside. He knows he's going to die soon. As our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, right? That's probably a reference to John 20, right? Back to read John 20. Peter's reinstated and Jesus says to him, you're going to die this way. <laughs> so Peter knows. I mean, it's coming. Uh, and while he's here, he's going to speak of these great truths. I will make, verse 15, every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things, right? So here's Peter passing on a legacy as he reminds them of these truths. And then in verse 16, he refers to probably the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Peter, James, and John 
had the supreme privilege of the apostles to go on to the Mount of Transfiguration and see Jesus transfigured before them, right? Something of, you know, his glory shines through. Uh, Moses and Elijah are there. And I mean, what an experience uh, that is there. And of course, the Father speaks from heaven. Hear him, right? Uh, uh, gives all of the authority then into the, to the Son. So Peter reminds us of that, so reminds them of this. We did not follow cleverly invented stories. When we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased. That's probably a reference to the Mount of Transfiguration. We ourselves heard this voice. Came from heaven. When we were with him on the sacred mountain. I mean, he, he never forgot that, right? Uh, that experience. Yet, right? Verse 19. As glorious as that experience was, this eyewitness, right? All of that experience of the transfiguration was simply, in some sense, the fulfillment of the prophets. The prophetic word already in the Old Testament, and that's what he's referring to, anticipated these things, (laughs) spoke of these things. And what Christ does in his coming is he confirms all of that prophetic word and brings it now to fulfillment in himself. In some senses, Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke. Now, in these last days, he's spoken in the Son. So he says, we now have the word of the prophets made more certain. <laughs> right? So this experience is confirmation of exactly what the prophets said. So he's taking them back to Scripture. Right? You will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And then verse 20, this is the context of this very, very important verse. Verses, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture, of course, that's now referring to the Old Testament, these prophets who anticipated this in the Old Testament revelation, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. Right? So the prophet spoke, but that's not where they got it. They got this by not their own will, but men spoke from God as they were, and this word here is carried along. It's a Greek word that is it's a kind of power term, right? They were sort of carried along. Now, we're not told exactly how they're carried along, but there's the supernatural work of the Spirit, right? Uh, so that they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, right? Now, This is the first aspect of inspiration, right? So Peter's recounting his experience, but he's saying this makes the word of the prophets more sure. And remember, those prophets didn't just come up with these things on their own. They just didn't say, well, here's here's some thoughts for you. Uh, Israel, this is what you're supposed to do. No, no, no. You think, remember, you go back to all the prophets. Thus says the Lord. The Lord says through me, right? Uh, They have a word of God by revelation, that its origin is not in them, but it's ultimately in God, and they spoke. How would they speak authoritatively? I mean, these are just finite individuals, because they are speaking by the carrying along, by the power of the Spirit. So the emphasis of this text here is on the unique agency of the Spirit of God in these prophets speaking, but also the prophets write. Right? We have their written documents, so 
in and through and upon these authors. God is carrying them along so that they don't just give us their thoughts. They give us God's word, right? And that's exactly what you see all the way through the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, right? Moses doesn't say, I'm speaking just on behalf of myself. Here's the word of God to you, right? So that's the first aspect of inspiration. And God is carrying along. You see the supernatural emphasis. Now, 2 Timothy is also needed to give us uh, the full doctrine of inspiration. And this text here is obviously well known for our understanding of Scripture. Right? Now, again, it has a context. Right? So here is Paul's, Second Timothy is written at the very end of Paul's life to Timothy, who's in Ephesus. As his young pastor apprentice, Paul knows he's going to die soon. Right? We know that from chapter 4. And he's giving his last will and testament in some sense to him, right? He's exhorting Timothy of how to lead the church, how to be faithful to the church. So all the way in chapter 3, verse 1, he's reminding Timothy of the kind of days he'll minister in. And these days have not changed because these are the last days that you and I still live in, right? So from a biblical perspective, the first coming of Christ brought the last days into this world. That's a term from the Old Testament. And the last days will continue until Jesus comes again. Right? So the last days doesn't mean just at the end. It's the entire period of time. Right? So Paul says to Timothy, you need to know the kind of days you live in. <laughs> and first he starts off with, they're terrible. <laughs> right? They're terrible times. Right? And then he describes things that have not changed for 2,000 years. <laughs> In some sense, they haven't changed since Genesis 3. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient. So, I mean, he just goes on and on. All right. What's he doing here? Right? He's have realistic expectations. Right? You're going to minister in difficult days. Now, he's also going to have many positive things because ultimately the word of God is powerful and it ultimately brings change. And that's why he's going to exhort him in chapter 4 in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, which is the God of all sovereignty and power, who will judge the living and the dead in view of his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Right? And that is what his calling is, right? But he is lives in challenging days. Well, how should he navigate these days? Well, verse 10, he should navigate these days by following Paul's example. That's one thing. And then more significantly in verse 14, he is to follow the scripture. Right? And of course, this is foundational, right? Timothy, how are you going to serve in the last days? How are you going to be faithful in your ministry? How are any of us going to be faithful living until Christ comes again? Follow the scripture, right? And so he has in verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know uh, those from whom you've learned it. Your mother, grandmother, he goes, he's, that's what he's referring to. And how from infancy, how from childhood? You have known the Holy Scriptures, right? which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Right? Now, it's interesting here, right? The Scriptures he's referring to is the Old Testament. Right? And it's very interesting. He can say that the Old Testament, because the New Testament's being written, right? Uh, the Old Testament can lead you to faith in Christ. <laughs> That's important, right? That tells you a little bit of what the Old Testament should be 
about, <laughs> uh, how it should be preached and how it should be thought through and how it should be applied and, and so on. But he says, you know, the scriptures, you've known from infancy the scriptures. Uh, they're able to make you wise. So that is how you're supposed to navigate your ministry. Be faithful, proclaim those scriptures. So before the New Testament's ever written, there was always scripture for the church. Again, this is against Andy Stanley. <laughs> it's almost as if, well, there was no New Testament, yes, you know, that, that's not, you know, that's in the first century and it comes in to the church, not immediately type of thing. Yeah, yeah, but they had the Old Testament. Right? No apostle ever preached anything but the Old Testament as they wrote the New Testament. There's always God's word. Right? And then he says, they're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Why? Now you have what scripture is. Right? No human book can make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. No human book can help you navigate life unless it is this kind of book, right? And so he says in verse 16, this is our famous text here for Scripture, is all Scripture is, and there you have the word that King James translated inspired, better translated God-breathed, all Scripture is exhaled my God, right? Breathe that, right? This notion of God breathe, you can't read this without thinking of creation, right? So in Genesis 1, God speaks, boom, there's a universe, right? Now that creation out of nothing, I mean, that's power, right? So God speaks, there's a universe. Well, there's the same speaking, right? All of God's actions in Scripture are through His Word, right? He speaks creation into being, he sustains the universe by his word. He gives the word to the prophets. Uh, Jesus even is identified as the word, right? I mean, you have all of this way, but all scripture is exhaled, breathed out, and thus is useful for, and this is where you get sufficiency and so on, it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, right? It's given to you so that you can then be, in particular, speaking of Timothy as the man of God, that would be the elder, the pastor, but obviously there's extension to all of us as, as the church, right? But it's thoroughly will equip him, right? Because Paul's writing to him. Um, you know, how do you lead this church, Timothy? Well, by the scripture, because it can equip you thoroughly for every good work. Therefore, preach it. Now, there's something very, very important about verse 16. I mean, a lot of things, right? So it's clearly assuming it's full authority, it's ability to instruction, correction, and so on. Again, I remind you again, this is the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament's useful for teaching. The Old Testament's useful for rebuking, you know, and so on, as well as the New. But obviously, you need a whole Bible. But he's referring here to the Old Testament. But the emphasis in this text um, on verse 16 is not so much on God breathing out authors. Now, 2 Peter was more of that, right? The Spirit of God in and through authors, carrying them along. But the emphasis here is that what God breathes out is Scripture. <laughs> so the emphasis is on the text of Scripture, the books of Scripture, right? So what does God breathe out? Well, in the context of here is he breathes out the Torah, the Pentateuch. That's the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, right? Uh, yes, Moses writes that. The Spirit of God carries him along, but what he writes is God-breathed. It's not just Moses written. It is. 
but it's the God-breathed text, right? That's what gives it authority, right? So when Isaiah writes Isaiah, this is God's word. Now, it's Isaiah's word too. How many times do, does Scripture use God's word and the human authors interchangeably? Right? When Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy in Matthew 4, man shall not live by bread alone, then what's he say? But by every word that proceeds from the mouth. He doesn't say of Moses. But Moses wrote it. Right? Now he could say Moses, but that's not the point. Moses' writing is God's writing. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Right? You even have Jesus in Matthew 19 will say when he quotes Genesis 2 about marriage, he'll say, God said. <laughs> Over and over and over again, you'll have that. God said this. God said this. Even though it's Isaiah who wrote it, and it's Moses who wrote it, and they wrote it in their own abilities and so on, right? So the emphasis here is, again, on this text. So these two ideas together come together, right? So what's inspiration, right? Well, God is at work supernaturally. This is not an ordinary event, right? He's at work in and through authors so that what they write right, is God-breathed, right? Now, that's not to say that in every area of Paul's life, God is supernaturally at work. There's many things that Paul does ordinarily, but when he's writing scripture, that's different, right? And that's the emphasis on these texts. So, inspiration has to do with the text of scripture. The scriptures are the very breath of God. These are some of the conclusions I wrote down. Um, the very content of scripture, right? So obviously what it's teaching is God-breathed and the way it comes to us is God-breathed, right? That's what I mean by form. So the parables are important as parables, right? Uh, the narratives are important. God, God has given us diverse literature, right? And all of that is significant. He wanted that kind of literature. He wanted poetry. He wanted wisdom. He wanted apocalyptic writings. He wanted narratives and so on, right? All of that. And inspiration pertains to the entirety of Scripture. All Scripture. Sometimes you could say every Scripture, but, but all that is Scripture is breathed out. Now, this doesn't mean that every other book is this. No, it only pertains to Scripture, right? So that there are specific texts. That's why we talk about the canon. Which books are inspired, right? Is Josephus inspired, the early Jewish historian? No. Right? Is Charles Spurgeon inspired? No. Right? But the writings of the Apostle Paul, because of the unique action of the Spirit, they're inspired. Right? That's why these are distinct, unique books that then bear authority and they must then be followed, obeyed, and so on, because they are God's Word. Right? That, so that's why they have authority. Right? So even in looking at these two verses together, this we be, we describe the is the Bible just a religious text? No. Yes, it's a religious text, but it's more than that. It's not just comparable to the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita's, right? It is uniquely God's word. Right? Is this just a witness to God's word? Well, certainly witnesses uh, to everything that God does. Yet the very text itself is the word of God. Right? Now, that is a very, very strong view of biblical authority, right? So when we hold up in our hands, we can say, well, here's Paul's word, but we can say Paul's word is God's word, right? Uh, so this is why sometimes you people stumble in 1 Corinthians 
um, I think it's seven, where Paul says, uh, um, the Lord said this, and I say this. And people say, well, Paul's making his authority different than Jesus at this point. That's not the point, right? He's just referring to the fact that in Jesus' life and ministry, he didn't address some of the issues that Paul's addressing. But Paul, in addressing those issues, speaks with divine authority. Right? Paul will say, um, you look at um, a good example of this, how in 1 Thessalonians, um, you go back um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, and he's writing to the church of Thessalonica, and he says, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power and with the Holy Spirit, a deep conviction, right? And then you go over to chapter 2, verse 13. We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, how did they accept it? You accepted it not as the word of men. Now, Paul speaks it. He's a man. But it's not just that, but as it actually is, <laughs> the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Well, you say, Paul, how dare you think of yourself in that way? Well, he doesn't think of himself in that way just because he thinks highly of himself. He's chosen to be an apostle, right? He is um, commissioned by Christ. He is acts under inspiration of the Spirit. This doesn't happen to everybody, right? The apostles are unique and those who write scripture and so on, right? So that's really what inspiration is. Those two texts give us, right? It's through human agents, prophets, writers, but it's not just ordinarily, right? They're carried along and what they write is God's word, right? The Bible is the word of God. At the same time, it's the word of humans. Right? Now, number two, just picking up a few of these uh, points and unpacking this a bit more, right, is, is the first point under sort of unpacking inspiration here, ex expounding it a bit, is just simply giving the basis for that definition in these two texts. Right? Um, and then I've referred to a number of other ones that sort of back that up, right, uh, and so on. But then we would say here, inspiration because it is the unique sovereign work of the triune God in and through the Spirit upon the authors, right? Uh, it's not really, we don't have any uh, specific explanation of, of, say, a 2 Timothy or 2 Peter 1, right? How did the Spirit of God carry them along? <laughs> that's a good question, um, but we're not exactly told. All we can do, and that's why I say here, you can't just sort of, a priori means you sort of say, uh, before you even look at the data, uh, you simply say, oh, this is how the Spirit of God did this, right? No, no, no. Instead, we have to, we don't know. We just have to look at the data, right? We have to look at the various ways that we see God at work in giving us his word. Uh, we're not told exactly how the sovereign God oversaw, superintended, uh, carried these authors along. Now, this is where we often distinguish between modes right modes of inspiration in the sense of our modes of revelation right modes meaning um, sometimes the revelation came to the prophets through a dream right and then they wrote that down right? uh, sometime through a vision right so uh, John sees 
the Lord high and lifted up in Revelation 4. Isaiah sees God high and lifted up. He sees a vision. And then he talks about that. And then, of course, it gets written down uh, freely as he puts all that book of Isaiah together. Uh, Luke, uh, he goes about in Luke chapter 1. He says he's doing research. He's going out and doing interviews, and he's probably talking to Mary, and he's you know doing all kinds of things. Uh, the apostles, and he's putting careful research. Oh, Theophilus, whoever Theophilus is, I don't know. But uh, he's putting that together, and then he writes his gospel, right? And the research, right, is done, but the writing of that gospel is under inspiration. The research may be under the sovereign hand of God as he goes and does his interviews, but the writing of the text is different. So there's different modes of the way scripture has come to us but the manner of inspiration right the manner of it is certainly God at work in the author's lives I give you a quote from B.B. Warfield famous um, theologian from Princeton Princeton isn't what it used to be but uh, Princeton um, uh, there who argued if God wished to give his people a series of letters like Paul's he prepared a Paul to write them and the Paul he brought to the task was a Paul who simultaneously would write just such letters, right? The same can be said for Moses, right? Uh, Moses writes the Pentateuch. How, how would he have the skill and ability? Well, he was trained in the best of Pharaoh's land. <laughs> he was in the highest level of education in Egypt, right? He learned all these things. That was preparation. That's still not inspiration, but God's still at work, right? This is where ordinary providence comes in. Uh, God prepares the authors to write. He prepares a Moses to write. Right? So much prepares him that uh, they put him in a basket. He's <laughs> protected. Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, all of that is sovereignly orchestrated to prepare a Moses to lead, to write, to teach, to do all those things. Yet when Moses writes, there's still the sovereign action of God. Right? Or Paul, right? Paul was trained in the best of Jewish Theology, Gamaliel, he talks about that. I was raised in as a Pharisee, and so on. that all prepared him to know the Old Testament, and so on, right? Uh, and the same is true of the other biblical authors. Uh, Ezra is prepared, and Jeremiah is prepared, and and these individuals. So all of that is God at work in their lives, but still, when they write what they write, right? There is the sovereign work. God right now when we talk about inspiration we will use the term to set it over against other views of inspiration right so some views of inspiration are well it was dictated that's called dictation theory of inspiration and the problem is we only have a few places of dictation the Ten Commandments are dictated but uh, we don't have the Torah the whole five books dictated Right? Um, so dictation doesn't make sense. Like Islam, if you deal with Muslims, right, their whole view of the Quran is that it's dictated. Right? Uh, not the Bible. The Bible comes through free authors, yet sovereignly God is acting, bringing about what they write to be his word. Right? Or ecstatic theories of inspiration. Well, they just were put in a trance and then somehow they wrote scripture. No, 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 no. There's no evidence of that. Right? Instead, what we see is humans... In all of their abilities, God's preparation of those humans, calling of those humans, and so on, those authors, yet we see simultaneously God sovereignly at work, right? So this ties into God's relationship in providence and in sovereignty, right? God is sovereign, yet humans are free, but our freedom doesn't count against God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is able to act through human authors, right? 
Now, even saying it that way, this is where we get the view of concursive. Concursive theory of inspiration is another way of saying that in giving us scripture, humans write freely, but God is also sovereignly at work, right? They, there's dual agency. There's double authors in this way. God is the author as well as humans are the author. Now, behind that view, and this is where you need, I said to you in the first uh, session, that our view of scripture and our view of God go hand in hand, right? If you have a wrong view of God, you get a wrong view of Scripture. If you have a wrong view of Scripture, it will lead to a wrong view of God. Right? What view of God is necessary to give you this doctrine of inspiration? Right? Uh, a view where God is sovereign. He acts supernaturally. He can guarantee that what these finite fallen authors write is God's word. Well, the view of God that stands behind that is ultimately a sovereign God. Right? If you start whittling away at the sovereignty of God, the lordship of God, the God of providence, the God who can rule and reign and bring about his will, eventually your doctrine of scripture crumbles. And I can give you a rule to follow. If you're talking to someone who has a lower view of the Bible or doesn't think that this view of the Bible is correct, I can guarantee you there's not many guarantees I can give you, but I can guarantee you that they have a wrong view of God. Guarantee it. Right? They will have some weakened version. This is why you need a high and lifted God, right? The God of the Bible is able to, right? Not eliminate their freedom, the author's freedom, but in and through their freedom, <laughs> give you exactly what communicates to us, right? But if you don't have that view of God, eventually, well, maybe the Bible's fallible, and maybe God just witnesses through it, and maybe God will speak through error, and that's precisely these other views and where they eventually go, right? Now, third area, picking up this, is inspiration characterizes all of Scripture, right? We mean, we use the terms often when we speak of inspiration in the Bible's authority, verbal plenary inspiration. What do we mean by that, right? Well, plenary means full. So all that is scripture, right? All the books of scripture, which we then say are the 66 books of the Bible, the canon, all of them are inspired, right? Not that one is more inspired than the other. <laughs> it's not that the gospels are more inspired than Paul or, or Paul is more inspired than uh, chronicles or something like that, right? No, all of them, the fullness, everything that they say is given to us by God. And verbal picks up the idea that even the very words and sentences and literary forms all the way down to the words, right, is God-given. Right? This is why we are concerned to expound all the whole counsel of God to say, what has God said? Uh, to make sure we translate the Bible properly and all of these kind of things, right? Because the very words and all of scripture is given to us by God, right? So I have here that the New Testament 300 plus times cites the Old Testament, right? As authoritative. Uh, 1,500 different times allusions. I mean, it just builds, it just, it just builds on the entirety of scripture. Uh, details of the Old Testament from the New are just treated as true and reliable. So Jonah is referred to, and Elijah, and Lot's wife, and the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. All these things are referred to 
as true and reliable and even single words are referred to jesus i remember in matthew 22 says to the religious leaders he asks them the question who is the messiah and they come back and they say well he's he's david's son and he goes right on that's right that's good and then he says to them but why and he quotes from the old testament psalm 110 why did david who's the author of the psalm call him Lord, my Lord. And he's pressing them to think that the Messiah is more than human. But how does he get that? From David's psalm, right? He's going right to very word. <laughs> my Lord, the Lord says to my Lord, right? Well, that's important. And it's important that David's the author, right? He's appealing to these texts to be true and reliable and so on. In fact, in the same account of the last week, you know, they pepper Jesus with a lot of questions, right? And he just silences them. <laughs> but they say, well, here's a man and he was married and, or a, a woman was married and her husband died and then she got remarried again and her husband died and, and, and she got remarried again and her husband died. And who's, whose wife is she in the resurrection? <laughs> and then Jesus shuts them down and says, you don't know the scriptures. <clears throat> There's no marriage in heaven, first of all. <laughs> And then he says, you know, then he even speaks about, you know, a single word. And then he refers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and he peels to the very tense of the verb. Or in Paul in Galatians 3.16 says, you know, God said to Abraham that there's a singular seed that's coming from him. That's Christ, right? So he makes a whole argument based upon a singular versus a plural, right? All of that is to say scripture right down to its very words all of its fullness now that doesn't mean when we interpret it you just isolate words right uh you put them in sentences and paragraphs and so on but all that is there is given for our instruction right this is why you have this phrase no canon within a canon right you don't just say hey i'm going to spend my life in ministry reading the apostle paul and ignoring everything else right no, Paul is part of Scripture, yet he's part of the entirety. You've got to also read Leviticus, too. <laughs> and you've also got to preach numbers. <laughs> now, who wants to preach numbers? I mean, but you, now, that's not to say, right? That's not to say that uh, the Bible, there's certain books that may be more directly relevant, depending on where we live in the New Covenant and so on, right? So often the Bible is compared to a mighty orchestra, right? In an orchestra, every single person in that orchestra is necessary for the beautiful music to take place, right? They're all necessary, yet some have a more prominent role, right? So obviously the book of Romans, right, in light of where we are at, right, has a prominent role, but that's not to minimize the fact what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture, the Old Testament, is God-breathed, useful for teaching, correction, and so on, right? So that's why in our lives, and in our ministries, and our teaching, and our teaching our children, and so on, right, we have to give them the whole counsel of God, right? Why? Because it's the inspired word of God, right? Uh, we have to know the depth and breadth of it. We don't just preach one part of it, right? We preach everything that is there, right? And that doesn't also mean, and I have this last area here, doesn't mean that we don't have to do hard work of trying to understand Scripture, right? Uh, just because it's inspired doesn't automatically mean that we've understood it, right? That doesn't preclude the fact that we still have to study it. That we still have to read it. We still, But what we're reading, the reason why we take it so seriously you know, I, I may like Shakespeare uh, or, 
you know, Harry Potter or something. I haven't read Harry Potter, but my kids read Harry Potter. They liked Harry Potter. Um, but, you know, you like something like that, but you don't take it seriously in the sense that, oh, yeah, I really love this as literature, but it's not authoritative. But you take the Bible seriously because it actually is the word of God, right? It's just necessary for you to know him. It's necessary for your life and godliness and so on, right? So this is why uh, scripture is so significant. So all of the Bible's authority, it's inspiration. This is why sola scriptura is a legitimate phrase. Uh, I don't know how many are on blogs and this type of thing these days, but uh, even within the evangelical world, there's attack on sola scriptura again. Uh, it just gets frustrating. But scripture, right, sola, alone, why is scripture, and what sola scripture means, and I have this down here, it means is ultimately it's, it's the final authority. It's the infallible authority. It's, it's what we ultimately appeal to, what we preach and teach and command and exhort and bind people's consciences with in terms of faith and practice, right? Why is it that? Because it is the inspired word of God, right? Because it's not just a human word. It is God's word for us through those authors, right? Church tradition may be helpful. Other books may be helpful. And you read all those things. But in the end, Scripture, where it especially, and we'll pick this up with sufficiency after break, but, but you know, where Scripture speaks directly, and what's its purpose in leading us to faith and godliness, it is final. And if our views contradict scripture, our views go. Scripture never does, right? We are to test everything by the question, where stands it written? Of course, and I give you the example of Martin Luther, right? This was the guy of the Reformation. Uh, the diet of worms, right? But it should be worms. But, you know, the Germans take their W's. They should be sounded V's, but... Uh, everyone, you know, you read this and you think, oh my goodness, what if, what's a diet of worms? But it was a session in Worms, 1521, right? And this was a major debate between the Catholics and the Protestants at this point, right? The Catholics believed in the Bible, but the church had the right to interpret the Bible. <laughs> and the church had the right to even add from seeds from the Bible. And they developed entire doctrines. And you say, where'd you get that? Well, the church has the authority to do so. And of course, that gets tied back to their Christ is now given the church's authority, which of course you do not have in the New Testament. The church's authority under God's word, right? Under the lordship of Christ and so on. So Luther, as he has to stand before, you know, the, the church. I mean, there's no other church yet. The church, Protestant church hasn't started yet. And they are saying, we're the voice of God. <laughs> Listen to us. And that you need to recant and trust the magisterium and all that. He says, look, he says he didn't take this lightly. But I give you the quote there, unless I'm convinced by scripture. Right? Unless I'm convinced by plain reason. Use properly interpreting scripture and so on. He says, that I'm an heir for popes and councils have often erred. Right? Which is true. He says, I cannot withdraw. I am subject to the scripture. My conscience is held captive to the word of God, right? Now that's a true attitude to the Bible and it will show itself in its application in our lives and its sufficiency in our lives and so on. But, you know, there's a famous passage in Isaiah 66 which the Lord speaks of himself. It really combines him and his greatness as well as his revelation of himself and he tells us 
who does the Lord esteem, right? Who is, who is honored by God, right? Well, he says in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, and we'll finish with this. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Where's the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so it came into being. Of course, he's you know, <laughs> sort of like what God says to Job. You know, where were you? And uh, am, am I not this? And uh, whom are you going to compare me to? And then he says, this is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. Obviously, humans, right? We're just finite. You better be humble because God is great, right? And then he says, and trembles at my word, right? Takes him at his word, right? The test of, you know, the reason for our creation, the test of our Christian lives, the test of godliness, right, is that we believe the word of God and we take him at his word, right? We say, right, right, the Bible says so, right? And the reason we do that it's because it's the inspired word of God. It has authority. It's not like any other book, right? And it is reliable, trustworthy, and true, right? So that's the Bible's authority. And that's what we mean by inspiration. And really, out of inspiration comes, why is it infallible? Well, it's inspired. If, if we understand inspiration, we understand its infallibility. Why is it inerrant? It will not lead us astray and it won't make contradictions and errors and so on because it's God's word. It's inspired, right? Uh, why is it sufficient for our life? Because it's inspired. It's God's word and so on, right? He gives us, he knows everything and he's able to give us what we exactly need, right? So that's what we want to pick up. Let's take our break and then um, we'll come back and look at some areas of sufficiency, right? So You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone-u.